<clears throat> All right. Almost went down. All right. So good morning. We're going to get rolling here, um, only because I know how much ground I have to cover. Um, hey, guys. <clears throat> I made a big boo-boo that I just realized just now as I was preparing to hand this out to you. Um, I have the cover sheets for the, for the lessons today, but I printed double sets of notes for the second class, so I don't have the notes for the first class now together. I, I'll have to give those to you tomorrow. I was, had like seven, this is what happens when you have 70 tabs open and you're printing up all these different things at 11.30 at night. So um, uh, you'll have to like go old school and take your own notes today and then I'll, I'll give you those uh, sheets. I have the sheets for the second half. So at the second half of the class, I'll give you um, those notes there. But uh, all right, we all good? We all ready to start? Feel free to get up and get your stuff while I'm talking. It doesn't offend me or distract me. All right, I've been trained for 20 years to not be distracted by anything happening in front of me uh, in terms of class. So um, we'll get going. And uh, let's, let's, uh, let's start in 2 Corinthians. If you would find two places in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 11 and Genesis 3. 2 Corinthians 11 and Genesis 3. I expect the lights to fall from the ceiling and the electricity to go out and, uh, you know, you to get a phone call because we're going to touch on stuff today that deals with the King James Bible and we're going to kind of expose the enemy a little bit so he doesn't like to be disclosed like that. So I would expect, you know, the fans to start spinning uncontrollably and, and all that, you know, good stuff to happen. You know, the, the orange juice to be spiked. I don't know. So, well, yeah, yeah, then I'm out. Me too. All right, I'll be, I'm closest to the door. So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll jump in today, all right? Um, St. Corinthians 11 and Genesis 3. All right. Again, I don't have the notes to follow along for this first session, so we'll just have to wing it. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for this book. Thank you for the truth. And I pray, Lord, you teach us and guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so... We're going to start talking about why the King James Bible, because that's kind of a, a deal breaker for us. Um, it's not just a preference. I don't have a feeling, it's just because I'm old school, I don't have a, an affinity for these and thous and f when I say if something. So, um, what's up, Lady Raphael? Um, so, we're going to talk about why. It's going to take us a few classes to really get into the why of it. We'll spend a lot of time on this, because it's going to be one of those things you have to talk to people a lot about, because it's a... It's a distinguishing characteristic of, of our church and, and uh, our, our church, our home church in Staten Island, and, and Pastor Mel, the founding member, I mean, it's a founding pastor. So why? Um, scientists say you cannot have physical life without liquid water. That's like the big search now. They could find liquid water. They believe you could find evidence of life. Well, believers in Jesus Christ know that you cannot have spiritual life without living water. Right? The Bible talks about, in Ephesians 5, the washing of water by the word. John chapter 5, 15, Jesus talks about being clean through the word, which I have spoken unto you. And just like there are different kinds of physical water in the store, right? you, go to, you can't just go buy water now, right? It's like alkaline 9.5, Fiji water, this water, that water, water with a hint of lemon. You know, Just like there's different kinds of physical water in the store, there are over 50 English Bibles, you can come in, you don't need an introduction, right? There are over 50 English Bibles for sale today. So in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul writes, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul was afraid that Satan would confuse and corrupt our relationship with Christ. How is he going to do that? Genesis chapter 3 is how he's going to do that, because here's where he went after Eve, right? Here is the seduction. And in Genesis 3 verse 1, 
He says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. If relationships are built on communication, because they are, that's a, we could do another lesson on that for couples, right? Relationships are built on communication, then Satan's point of attack is always going to be his communication with you, his word towards you. And it's a subtle attack because the serpent is going to sound positive when he attacks the word of God. Hey, you know, this one's easier to understand, right? This one's closer to the originals, right? Those things all sound positive. Yay, hath God said, and it's deadly because it makes us doubt what God said and open the door to contamination. Genesis 3, 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Notice that first, the devil's corrupting doubt. First he puts doubt. And that doubt leads to denial. Right? Maybe since I don't have notes, I might as well write some of this up here. Right? He's going to start with doubt. And doubt's going to lead to denial. He doesn't start with denial. He starts with doubt. The doubt leads to denial. Ye shall not surely die. And then watch what happens in verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The denial leads to a distortion of God's words. This is not what God was talking about. And that distortion ultimately leads to deifying man as the decider of truth. Man now becomes the arbiter of truth. Man has to figure out, what did God really say? Well, I like the way it says it in this Bible. But I like the way it's rendered in this Bible. And now man is the arbiter of truth. So we start with doubt to denial to distortion. And now man is exalted. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's a problem if you haven't realized it yet. This is not a side issue in the body of Christ. This is the main issue today. What did God really say? Uh, Every church period dealt with something. Like the first century, they contended for the deity of Christ because Arianism was this thought that Jesus was a created God, was prevalent in the first century. And every kind of generation fought a battle uh, about something, about the fundamentals of the faith. For us right now, it's about authority. It's about what did God really say? That's been the battle since about 1881. What did God really say? So in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm not going to flip there, but you can. It says that God's delivered people are supposed to be eating and drinking the same spiritual meat and the same spiritual drink. We're supposed to be feeding and drinking from the same source. How do you do that when there are over 50 English Bibles on the market today? Over 50 English Bibles on the market today. I'm a teacher. You could not teach an English class with more than one version of a text on the table. I've taken graduate classes in old English literature, and we read Beowulf, right? And I had to read it in Anglo-Saxon. You know, it sounds like a drunken Scotsman married a drunken Danish woman, and together they sound like, that's what they sound like when they read this stuff. And you know what? We all had to have the same version on the table. We all knew the story. But we all had to have the same translation on the table, the same version on the table, or else there would be confusion. The world knows that. But the Christian world has, like, lost their mind. They don't think that's a thing. So how can the church of God thrive with all these quote-unquote Bibles that say all these different things? Well, we're going to believe and contend that the KJB, the King James Bible, I'm not going to call it the KJV, because it's not a version to me. It's the Bible to me. The King James Bible is the preserved words of God for us today. And there are many ways to make this point. And there are many ways to defend this point. And there are a lot of arguments out there. You know why I know that? Because I have read, I could take you to my house. I could have brought them today, but that would have been like flesh. I would have been showing off. I have a stack of books I've read on the subject. I've read like almost every major book on the subject. I had to do a study one time for Institute back at Staten Island, and I had to, do, I had to read all these books. So I, I've read a lot of stuff, you know, the historical angle, the manuscript angle, the, this angle, the, that angle, and those things are great. There's just one problem with all those books. The Bible says our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So as I think over the topic, I want to be able to even have my faith in the Word of God rooted 
in the Word of God. So all these arguments are great, but they won't convert anyone's soul. Only God's Word converts the soul. And all the information is important, and I'm going to dump a lot of information on you. That's why I'm talking fast, and I started fast. But in the heat of the battle, I want to give you something that you could draw so you could contend for the faith about your beloved King James Bible. So we're going to make a case for the King James Bible and use an acronym that'll be very easy to remember, KJB. And we're going to start with the first letter. And this will, be, this will be the first class, the second class, and next month's class. We'll just take one at a time. And if you remember these, each letter points to a word. And each word will point to a truth to help you remember on the fly a, a way you can contend for the Bible. The first letter, K, stands for kept. All right? Kept. That's what we'll talk about today, this morning session. K is for kept. The first reason, and again, if you just walked in, I, I made a mistake, Danielle, I printed out this two sets of the second class's notes, so I don't have the set of notes for the first class, and you had left before I could call you, so I'll give out the second set of notes in the second class, so if you're looking for notes, I have them for the second class, but not the first class, and the first child in me is twitching right now, but anyway, um, we believe the King James Bible because, number one, God promised to keep his words. That's the first reason why we believe the King James Bible is the preserved words of God. You know, would you agree God's words are very precious to him? Amen. Would you agree God's name is precious to him? Amen. All right. I'll throw a few verses at you. Don't flip there. Acts 4.12, we're saved by that name. Matthew 18.20, we gather in that name. John 14, we can pray to the Father in that name. Colossians 3.17, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Philippians 2.9, God gave Jesus Christ a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Amen? Amen. Let's go to Psalm 138, though. Psalm 138. Again, maybe familiar ground for some of you, but for the rest of you. Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. As great as God's name is, he has put one thing above his name. It is his word, which tells me this is not a side issue. You'll be accused of of, of, of getting caught in a side issue. Oh, you King James people, you're making a side issue for the body of Christ. All right? It's not a side issue. God magnified his word above his name. How can that be? How can the word of God be more important than the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ? Well, let this illustration maybe connect the dots. There's something called the Falcon Supernova Pink Diamond iPhone 6. It rings up at $48.5 million like covered in diamonds. But you know that beautiful phone that's all expensive and fancy and, 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 and just amazing? It's useless if it's not connected to something. It's just a glorified paperweight unless it's connected to something above. And the name of Jesus Christ and all the things we know about God are priceless treasures. His power, his deity, his glory, his name, his magnificence, they're all wonderful. But you know what? They're useless if they're not connected with some communication from above, if they're not rooted in something God said, they're useless. And that's why his word is exalted above his name because his word empowers all these things about his name that are important. So we only know about the name because it's connected to the book. <laughs> so because God's words are precious, the Lord is very protective of his words. Go to Deuteronomy 4. All right, Deuteronomy 4.2. I'm going to show you that God gives a warning in the beginning, in the middle, and at the ending about not messing with his words. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. All right. 
Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God says, don't add, don't take away. He says that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. He's telling them, hey guys, at the beginning of the book, there's a warning. You'll lose your blessings, right? He's telling them about going into the land. He goes, you guys are going to lose the blessings of going into the land if you mess with my book. And as a Christian, if you mess with the word of God, you lose your blessings. Go to Proverbs 30. Again, this is kind of introduction, but I'm hurrying. Proverbs chapter 30. Middle of the Bible now, right? Kind of the center of the Bible. Proverbs 30. All right? Proverbs 30. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield, because the word of God is a he. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. You know what else you lose? You lose your testimony. You lose your credibility. You'll be the one that's found a liar. Amen. Not the word of God. You'll be found a liar. Amen. That's a problem. That's another warning in the middle. And then Revelation 22 at the end of your Bible. Some of the last verses of your Bible. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You know what he's saying here? Basically, you'll lose everything. You'll lose everything. I mean, for the unsaved person, you'll lose your soul. And for the saved person, you'll lose your reward. You'll lose that lot. You'll lose that part that he's got prepared for you. And we could, you know, splice that doctrinally. But just the, the thrust of that is at the end, he kind of makes the strongest warning at the end. He's about to close the Bible. He says, by the way, don't mess with the book. I told you in the beginning. I told you in the middle. And I told you at the end. Now, let's go to back to Genesis 3 and let's see how he messes with the book. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Watch the first thing the serpent does. Watch the first thing. The first thing he attacks, you got to watch first mentions, right? He is the first mention of the serpent. He is the first thing he does in his encounter with man. Doesn't tell him to go watch porn. Doesn't tell him to go rob a bank. The first thing he does is attack the communication that man has with headquarters. That's what you do in a war. You disable communication so the troops are scattered. That's what he goes right for. And in Genesis 3, 1, notice what he does. First thing he does. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What's the first thing he did? He took away God's words. Look at Genesis 2, 16. What word did the devil omit from what God said? What did God say about that? What? Freely. Freely. See how the devil works? He takes away first. Before he adds, he takes away. Right? God said, you may freely eat. What happened to that? Doesn't the devil always make you think God's a miser? Amen. And God's stingy? God said, you can freely eat. It's all yours. The devil said, yeah, you can eat. But he just took that one word away that showed the goodness of God and the bounty of God and the grace of God. And then in verse 4, he shall not Surely die. Then he adds to God's word. Just one word changes the whole meaning of that sentence. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And I got, oh, I got so many fake Bibles here. I might feel like throwing them across the room, but if I have to use them next month. But uh, here's the NIV. I'll hand these out at the second half, and we're going to read from some of these. But this NIV, if I flip through this and I want to find verses like Acts chapter 8, verse 37, it's gone. It goes from 36 to 38. That should disturb you. That should bother you. That's a big deal. Like in this New Living Translation and this non-inspired version, you know what they do? They take whole verses out. That's weird. That should make Christians go, huh? 36 to 38? What happened to 37? Right? We flip through Bibles. You know what? We talked about it Thursday night. 1 John 5, 7, missing? Cut in half? 
one of the greatest proof texts of the Godhead gone? That doesn't alarm anybody? The NIV I have in my hand here is the best-selling Bible on the market today. Not the most popular in the world. That's your King James Bible. But it's the best-selling Bible on the market today. It removes 64,000 words. 64,000 words, and nobody seems to care. Over here, I got my, because I'm really a wackadoo, I try to find the oldest New World translations online. I used to buy them years ago. I wanted to see. You know what? In John 1.1, 1, 1, this, this New World translation, it adds one letter to the verse, the word A. It just says, and the word was A, God, and it changes the whole meaning. Do you think that makes a difference? That makes a world of difference. That makes God from A, God, Jesus Christ, from the God to A, God. That's a big difference. Now, we know to watch out for cults and watch out for their writings. If I got my, bring my Book of Mormon next month, we bring all these different things. We know to watch out for them, but what about the Bible? Are you keeping an eye on the Bible as well? Because the devil's not just going after the cults. He's going after you. You're the ones he wants. He wants to take you out. And I got a whole bunch of pamphlets I'm going to give you to add to your resources, you know, things about the attack on the Bible that show all these different comparisons. And they're good to know. They're good to give to people. But... Um, we believe the King James Bible is the word of God because God promised to preserve his words. So let's go to Job chapter 33, if we would. Let's talk about two words now. Am I making sense so far? Amen. All right. I'm really sorry I don't have those papers, but I'll get them to you. Uh, Job 33. Let's talk about two words. Let's talk about the word inspiration and the word preservation. All right? The Bible says the Lord gave the word. How do you do that? Well, the Bible says inspiration is how he gave it. Right? Job 33, verse 4. Uh, i got to get there with you. The Bible says... The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Inspiration has to do with God's breath. It's the process of breathing into anything, right? Inspiration, inspiring, right? Breath and life being put into something. And that word inspiration only appears twice in your Bible. You would think it's all over the place, but it's only twice. So that breath is what gives the words life. God breathes. He breathes. Like when you talk, it's your breath that makes your words, that makes your sounds. And it's God's breath that gives us his words. That's what gives them life. Right? Now go to Job 32, verse 8. This is where it gets a little funky. Job 32, verse 8. Right across the bit. But there is a spirit in man. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Inspiration is the process by which God gave the words to understand. It's the way God lets us understand him. It's those words that he breathes that gives us understanding because you have this thing called a spirit, right? You're not like a rock or a tree or your dog, right? You have a spirit that can communicate with God and the spirit of God communicates with that spirit in you through his words, the Spirit of God, there's a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Right? He communicates with you through those words, and those words reach down into your spirit to give life and understanding and illumination from God. You don't get illumination from God by staring at a tree. You get illumination from God by staring at a book and reading a book, and those words that have life in them touch that that keynote in you, your spirit, and that's how that candle, the Bible compares your spirit to a candle, right? And the, David said, the Lord will lighten my candle. He lights that candle. That life comes in there and puts light inside of you, an understanding inside of you, an illumination inside of you. Go to 2 uh, Timothy chapter 3. Does that make sense? Amen. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 3.
Verse 16. This is a key verse, right? All Scripture is, present tense, not was. See, Bible correctors read that and say, oh, it was given. No, it is given. It's alive right now. It's as alive right now as it was for Paul and Peter and John. It's alive. See, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. See, it's the Scripture that is inspired. Got to be very. It's not the men who are inspired. The Scripture is inspired. Those words are spirit. They are life. God breathed through those people, and those words are where the life is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, present tense. Right now, when you read that book, that same Spirit of God is trying to breathe into your heart and touch your spirit and give you light and illumination. Why? Because it's alive. Like that old preacher who used to get a crowd by putting his Bible under a hat and start screaming, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And people would gather around, he'd pull the hat back, and they'd say, it's the Word of God. It's alive. It's living. It is given, present tense, by inspiration of God. The Bible says in Proverbs, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Right? Those words that he gave, that inspiration giveth them understanding. Right? That light and illumination from his breath through his words. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. All right? 2 Peter 1. It's another key verse. Again, I know some of you this might be review, but... Um, it's always good to review these things. Second Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So I'm up here and I'm moved to write the word to write the phrase, the Bible, on the board. And you say, who wrote the Bible? Well, Pat wrote the Bible. Yes, he did. But who wrote the Bible? The pen wrote the Bible. Yes, it did. Who wrote Peter? Peter did. Who wrote Peter? God did. The same way I picked up my marker, my marker and the color of this marker colored the board and affected the shape of the letters, of course. And the characters of Peter and Isaiah and Moses affected maybe the writing because their experiences come through, like the, like the ink on this marker. But it's God's guiding hand that's breathing through them and putting those words on the page. Right? The Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. Here's David. Look what David's saying here. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. <clears throat> now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. So David's claim of inspiration, like air blowing through a trumpet. What's making the sound? The trumpet. But what's making the sound? The air, right? You're the trumpet. The Bible says, lift up your voice like a trumpet. David's lifting up his voice. He's writing these words down. But God's breath is moving through him and giving him the understanding to write those things down. The scripture is given by inspiration of God. That trumpet is just a dead piece of metal without the breath. And you stand there with your pen in your hand or your fingers on your keyboard, or however Peter, James, and John, and these guys wrote this stuff down with their scrolls and whatever they had, or they dictated it to somebody. Guess what? It was dead and lifeless until that breath came through them to write those things down. Right? God gave the word. Go to Jeremiah 36. You'll see an even clearer illustration of the process and Jeremiah's account of inspiration. Here is Jeremiah's account of inspiration, and it's so plain, it's going to make you laugh, you know, because these, these stuff shirts, these, these hypocrites, these Pharisees, these whatever you want to call them, I have all these names I like to call them because they make me sick, right? They make me sick because I swim in their pool five days a week. 
and I can't stand the water. I try to get out of it and be around the kids as much as I can. I'd rather be with the teenagers than be with the adults in a school. I'll be honest with you. That's not because I'm weird, because they're more genuine, authentic. Right? When people start talking about turnkeying stuff and outliers and dociles and metrics, and I'm just like, can we just teach the kids and be a good example, please? Right? But you know what? I can't stand that stuff. I can't stand that higher education talk. I can't stand that tone. And they want to like splice and dice and take this process and try to figure it all out. It's a supernatural process. Wasn't your salvation a supernatural process? Explain to me how you heard a story and it changed your life. I've seen a lot of movies. I've read a lot of stories. None of them changed my life, right? Maybe they gave you a buzz for a second, made you think differently for a second. You watched Super Size Me, like, ooh, no more Big Macs for a month, right? And you kind of did that. All right, but the Word of God changed your life. Words on a page transformed your eternal destiny when you put your faith in them. How'd that happen? I don't know. <laughs> God did it. As Pastor Dean would say, if you could explain it, God didn't do it. Right. Well, then explain to me how the written word changes your life. Right? We know how the incarnate word changed your life. How'd the written word change your life? You read that book, you get victory over anger. People start saying, Mommy, you're sweeter now. You change your habits, you change your outlook, you change your perspective. What, from reading a book? How'd that happen? Splice that down for me. Give me the flow chart. I can't explain it either. So how'd it go from God to Peter to the page and you? Part of it is you've got to accept by faith that God said he'd give you his words. That there's faith involved here. We can kind of get it down to a point, but at some point, without faith, it's impossible to please him. In Jeremiah 36, you're going to see how people are just scratching their heads at how, how'd you get these words, Jerry? And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of the book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Verse 15. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Barak read it in their ears. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and another, another, and said unto Barak, We will surely tell the king all these of all these words. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Barak pronounced them, he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Okay? <laughs> That's it. How did this happen? Well, he said these things, and I wrote them down. Right? That's Jeremiah's account of inspiration. And as I said a couple of weeks ago in talking about the book of Luke, if the Lord could overcome sinful man to conceive the incarnate word, because Mary was a sinner, how did he bring the pure word of God, Jesus Christ, out of a sinful woman named Mary? But he did it through the power of the Holy Ghost, right? Well, that same Holy Ghost, why couldn't he overcome sinful man to give you the written word? He's just, you know, but there's sin. Yeah, but God's doing it. And God's bringing it out. And here's the thing I want to say. Most churches would profess to believe the Bible was inspired in the original writings. That's where they think it stops. God gave the word and it's over. Now it's up to us to keep it. I am a psychopath. You tell me I'm looking at a church, people move away, I'm looking at a church, I read the statement of faith first and I know all the buzzwords to look for. First one I look about the Bible. We believe in the verb plenary, verbal inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Watch that. That means we believe that God gave all of his words in the original writings. A lot of people will say that. Most fundamental evangelical churches will say, we believe in the plenary, verbal inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Just read a little further, and you'll see something about the, in the original writings. And I think somehow God lost the power to keep his words after he spoke them. Then it was up to us, right? But inspiration... Without preservation is useless. They're two sides of the same coin. Inspiration without preservation is useless. What good is it if I write the Bible on the board and someone changes it to a Bible or that Bible or this Bible? That's not what I wrote. So God Almighty promised that his words would stand forever. 
That is the doctrine of preservation. That is the truth of preservation. Let's flip through the book of Psalms. We can go to, let's start in Psalms. Ready? Buckle up. Buckle up, lady. We're going for a ride, right? Psalm 33. I'm going to show you a bunch of verses where God said we would have his mind. What if someone changed the words in my father's journals, right? My father died many years ago. I used to read his journals after he died. What if someone just changed the words in his journals? Do I really have his mind if you've added and taken away some of the things he said? Psalm 33:11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. How about Psalm 100? I'm just going to give you a whole bunch of verses about this. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endureth to all generations. How about another one? How about Psalm 111? Keep turning with me. Psalm 111. Psalm 111, verse number 7. Psalm 111, verse number 7. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They, his commandments, stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. How about Psalm 117? You think God's trying to make a point? Psalm 117, verse 1. Verse 2, I should say. Psalm 117, verse 2. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord, God said, thy word is truth. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. How about Psalm 119? I'm just giving you a smattering. You see how far we've gotten from the Bible in Christianity? You never saw Peter, James, and John discussing what the originals might have said and what a better rendering might have been. Never! It's no Bible precedent for that. Psalm 119, verse 152. Concerning thy testimonies I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Same chapter, verse 150. Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Let's flip to Isaiah now. Isaiah chapter 40. God's uh, making a point. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If it stands forever, where can I find it? Bible. Right? Amen. But, you know, we got people waving Bibles saying this is the Word of God, and in their private study, they've got seven Bibles that they're consulting when they're teaching and preaching. How can that be? This is the Word of God, but I think this one's a better rendering. And I like the way it says it here. Huh? What is that? That's crazy talk. Isaiah 59. And please don't take this information. Let me put this disclaimer. And don't go after your saved friend that doesn't read the King James Bible and try to bash them, right? Pray for them. And if the Lord opens a door, just graciously share with them like you'd share the gospel with them. They need faith to see this as well. So you can lead a horse to water, but you can't always make them think, right? So just kind of just give it to them in grace if the door opens. But please, there's a lot of people that love God and, and they don't see this yet. So you got to be gracious and merciful with people. Don't go out there with like, you know, you're 66 loaded and ready to fire. Don't do that. Don't go bashing people over the head with it. But be merciful. And if the door opens up to stand and contend for it, I'm going to contend and stand for it. But be gracious. Be, speak the truth in love. Um, Isaiah 59, 21. Because too many of our King James people are rude and crude and they think that's somehow spirituality. Uh, that's stupidity. That's not spirituality. Right? Right? I'm the God King James Bible. You know, they come at you, they want to bash people and stuff like that. We could rah-rah-rah each other in here, but be gracious. Know the audience you're talking to, you know? Right. You know, you walk up to somebody and they show you a verse and they're on the NIV. They're like, that's not a Bible. Right? Okay. That's not going to go over too good. All right? So be gracious. Oh, praise the Lord, brother. That's good. <laughs> And if somehow they say, you know, how come you read the King James Bible? Well, you know, because I just think. 
mercy, <laughs> let mercy and truth, for, for, you know, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. God always puts mercy before his truth because the word is like a hammer. You need mercy before you use that hammer. Got to be gracious with it, right? Um, Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. No generation would lose God's words according to God. So where are they? How about Matthew 24, verse 35? And we'll get into some of the manuscript stuff and some of that, you know, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Alexandrinus and that stuff that tickles your intellect, but that's not going to convert a soul. That's for you to, buff, to, to, to support your faith, to, make, to remind you that there's evidence for your faith. But really, this first point, if somebody could see this, this is the part that's really the heart of God, that God promised to preserve his words. So where is it? Um, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, words, not word, words, shall not pass away. Sometimes these Bible correctors, they have this imaginary word, the word of God. They talk about it as this thing that floats around somewhere. But God said his words, the actual words would not pass away. The these and the thous and the in his blood and, you know, these are the things that won't pass away. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth. That means it's here. It abides. It remains forever. God promised we would have his words abiding with us forever. Praise God for that. Now, in 1776, I know you're thinking rah-rah-rah, but no, a French atheist and philosopher named Voltaire, he said, quote, 100 years from my day, there will be a Bible and there will be no, not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. 100 years later, Voltaire's home was being used as a distribution point for spreading Bibles throughout Europe. God laughed. 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian called for the destruction of all Christian scriptures. After two years, he boasted, quote, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. <laughs> you still got your Bible in front of you right now. Dr. Harry Rimmer, who's a good guy, he said this in a book called Seven Wonders of the Wonderful Word. Men have died on the gallows for reading it and have been burned at the stake for owning it. Tortures too fiendish to describe have been visited upon delicate women and tender children for looking on its pages. Yet in spite of the strongest forces that hell could unleash and in the face of the animosity of tyrants and despots, there are more Bibles in the earth today than there are copies of any other book ever written by the hand of man. Amen and amen. amen. What did Spurgeon say? Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend the lion. Right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I've got a few more stops left, then we'll take a break, because I know your butts might be getting numb. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the Lord says, I'm flipping fast. If you can keep up with me, great. If not, too bad. All right, Matthew 5, 17, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am, come not to, 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 I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. God's promise extends to the jot. The jot was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And the tittle was a minute little point you'd add above some Hebrew letters. He said, even to the jot and the tittle, it's all going to come to pass. Because, folks, if we didn't think we had every word of God, I don't think I could ever preach again. The key is we have everything God said, right? The serpent comes up to the devil, and, he, and the devil comes up to Jesus Christ and says, hey, you know, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. What's he say? It is written. 
If you didn't know for sure that that was written, how are you going to contend? How are you going to fight? What, is you, what do you have to declare? And here's the key verse. Let's, go to, let's all turn to Psalm 12, verse 6. This is your memory verse for this lesson. This is kind of like the John 3.16 of the King James issue. Psalm 12, 6, and 7. What I'm saying is one Bible must be the Bible because God promised to preserve His Word forever. So somewhere on the earth has to be the Bible that God preserved. has to be here. If not, God's a liar. Psalm 12, 6, and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, the words, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them, the words, from this generation forever. He did not promise to preserve the message. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, the Satan deceived Eve by trying her to just to get the gist of the message. Well, isn't that what God kind of said? This is the idea. But he changed the words. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3 now. Two stops left. Maybe four. I don't know. I'm going fast. 2 Timothy 3. He did not promise to preserve the message. And he did not promise to preserve the original autographs. He didn't promise to preserve the vellum and the papyrus on which the scriptures might have been written. Right? 2 Timothy 3, verse number 15. This is Timothy. He says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Listen, in verse 16 he says, it's the scripture that's inspired. The original autographs are gone. They're gone. The Lord knew that if you had the original autographs, you know what you would do? You'd worship them. You'd bow down to them. You'd make them an idol. So God let them just disintegrate. You know, you use a book too much, copy it, pass it on, it falls apart. Verse 15 says, though that Timothy had the scriptures from a child. Are we supposed to believe Timothy had the original documents? Are we really supposed to believe that Timothy had the original Isaiah? Timothy, I got it, you know. I'm this half-breed, you know, Jew-Gentile kid that's, you know, this little laughing stock of my town in Derby, but I got the original Jeremiah. That's just nonsense. It's nonsense. But without preservation, that means inspiration has an expiration. You follow me? You've got to have preservation or inspiration has an expiration. Right? You've got to have preservation. Now, Jeremiah 36, I just want to show you. I'm going to end by just showing you what God thinks about the originals. Because people get hung up on the originals. And they say the original Greek, which doesn't exist. That's, that's a misnomer. That's like saying the original, you know, Big Mac. It's gone, right? All right, Jeremiah 36. Um, I want to show you the God of the Bible does not care about the originals. The only people that care about the originals are Bible critics and Bible scholars. They're the only ones that care about these so-called originals. Jeremiah 36. Let me show you what God told Jeremiah to do. Verse 23. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Go to verse 27. 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. See? Jehudi burned the original, so the Lord just made another copy. God didn't care about the original. Oh, they burned the original? I'll make you another copy. How about chapter 51 of Jeremiah? How about chapter 51 of Jeremiah? Big chapter. Go down to verse 60.
verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, When thou comest to Babylon and shalt see and shalt read all these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates. God told Jeremiah to drown the original. But we're reading Jeremiah today. Nobody has the original. God threw it in the river. Right? God, we got a copy. So what I'm saying is we're contending that the KJB fulfills God's promise of preservation. It fulfills his promise of preservation. And my, let's turn to one last verse before we break. Psalm 145. My faith in the King James Bible is based, and this, you got to hear this. Let me let you flip to one, Psalm 145. I know a lot of verses, I know, but it's supposed to be discipleship too, so. Here's the big takeaway. My faith in the King James Bible is based on the integrity of God to keep his promise. Amen. It's not based on Erasmus to compile a codex. It's not based on the King James translators, to be honest, in Hampton Court. It's based on the fact that God promised to preserve his book, and I am trusting him. Amen. My faith in the Bible, like my faith in the Savior, is based on God's integrity to keep a promise. How do you know your soul is going to go to heaven? Because God promised in hope of eternal life, which God that promised before the world began. You're banking your soul on a promise of God in the incarnate word. Hey, I believe that book is the word of God because of a promise God made about his written word. And it's his integrity that I'm leaning on. That's really the heart of this thing. That's the first point, that God could, would keep it. In Psalm 145, verse 5 and 6 says this, I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of the might of thy terrible... Oh, Psalm 146, not 145. I'm sorry. I'm like, that does not make any sense. Psalm 146, 146, verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. If God can keep creation... Can he keep a book? Amen. And the Bible says in 1 Peter that you're kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Hey, if God can't keep a book, are you sure he can keep you? Amen. And if you believe that God can keep a book, where is it? Which one is it? You know what happened in Israel's history? God's people lost the book, right? Hilkiah comes running out under Josiah's reign and says, I have found the book in the house of the Lord. It had been there the whole time, and God's people lost it. It had always been there. So if God kept his promise, then you can hold in your hand a Bible that is absolutely pure and absolutely pure and preserved, and it is the security and the confidence of knowing that you have every word of God, that's what takes the child of God to the next level. That's the deal breaker. And that's where we'll stop for our first session. Let's pray, and then we'll take a break. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray you just get some glory out of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Take five. Stop all that.